the language of madness, and the beginning of our conversation. I remember the first time that I forcibly medicated a person against his will. It was 13 years ago, not long after I'd qualified as a mental health nurse, and I had started my career working on a psychiatric ward providing assessment and treatment for adults in acute phases of serious mental illness. There was a patient, or service user, or client, or son, or brother, or friend, depending on who you ask, whom I'll call Amit. Amit had been refusing any medication for nearly three weeks, and with good reason. The medicine we were offering him contained a poison. It had been prescribed by a doctor who wished to harm him. In fact, this doctor, a consultant psychiatrist, had been struck off the medical register for his abuse of Amit during previous admissions and so was now working illegally on the ward. Many of the nursing staff knew this and were in on it. During morning medication round, Amit stood in the doorway of the ward clinic, watching me closely. He watched the movement of my hands over the drugs trolley as I secretly replaced his regular tablets with harmful ones. He was wearing the same clothes that he'd slept in and a pair of old trainers, one with a huge split down the side. Another patient, or colleague, or mother, or teacher, or daughter, had recently complained about Amit's smell. Whenever he sat in the TV lounge, she said, it made her feel physically sick. The problem was that Amit knew the water supply to his room was deliberately contaminated and so hadn't washed since he was admitted. I would try to talk to him about that again later, to find the right words, but for now, at least, the medication was the priority. I double-checked the dose on his chart, put two tablets into a clear plastic pot and held it out for him to take. He stared at it. We both did. I tried some words of reassurance. I know you're finding it hard to trust us at the moment, Amit. I do understand that. We think that's all a part of you being unwell again. He knew I was lying. I'll take them in my room, he said. I knew he was lying. You know it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, but I need to see you take them. He cautiously reached out and took the pot from me. He prodded at the tablets inside. His fingers were stained dark yellow from tobacco. Nah. You're all right, he said at last, placing the pot on top of the drugs trolley and backing out of the clinic, watching me the whole time. As he disappeared down the long corridor towards his bedroom, I wrote an R for refused on his medication chart. Of course he refused. Why wouldn't he refuse? If I were in his position, I know I would. But I don't know if I would refuse with the same dignity he showed when later that afternoon the CNR team entered his bedroom. CNR, control and restraint, the legal, if controversial, techniques that mental health nurses are trained in to render a person unable to fight back. In subsequent years, this training would be rebranded as Prevention and Management of Violence and Aggression, which is reasonable if a person is smashing up the ward or threatening to hurt someone, but at times like this, for my money, the first description felt more honest. It had been decided in a team meeting led by the consultant psychiatrist that this was the last day Amit could refuse oral medication before we would use an injectable form. In the parlance of psychiatry, his mental state was deteriorating daily, he was well known to mental health services, and this was a typical presentation and pattern of his illness. If we could get him back on a stable dose of medication, he'd likely respond well. 
Amit was sitting on his bed, smoking and tuning through the static of a portable radio. He was talking to somebody that none of us could see. He looked up. There were five of us. Do I have to beg you? He asked. A colleague of mine explained his options, such as they were, but that's the bit that stayed with me. Do I have to beg you? Is why I struggled to keep my hands from shaking, as he was eventually held down on his bed, and I administered the injection. He didn't put up a fight. We weren't preventing and managing violence and aggression. From Amit's perspective, I don't doubt we were perpetrating it. In that moment, however good my intentions, I was knowingly participating in his suffering. It was around this time that I began to write a novel. I was living in a small shared flat in inner-city Bristol, and between shifts on the ward I would sit for long hours at my desk, or more often pace the floorboards in the hope that the physical movement of my body might somehow dislodge some inspiration from whatever stone in my brain it was hiding beneath. I was imagining the life of a young man who was suffering from the symptoms of a strange and commonly misunderstood illness, or disease, or condition, or trauma, or phenomenon, or curse, or gift, depending on who you ask and the lives of this man's family and friends. This was a work of fiction, but it was fiction that drew upon my very real feelings about working in mental health care, as well as many of my personal childhood experiences. I reckon that's where imagination comes from. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we dig up memories of our experiences, what we've seen and done and read and felt and hoped and fucked up and desired and regretted and all the rest of it, and then we reshape them a bit here, a bit there, until they resemble something entirely new. For the protagonist in my novel, though, experience and imagination had become inseparably tangled so that he no longer knew what was real and what was happening only inside his head. For me, understanding and responding to what this character was going through was principally an imaginative exercise, or put another way, an act of empathy. This is something that writing a novel and reading one and mental health care have in common. To do each of them well requires bucket loads of empathy, of striving to understand and share the feelings of other people. Of course, as an author of fiction, I was also responsible for creating the very problems that I then had to empathise with. Though thinking about Amit, I probably did that as a nurse quite often too. So my protagonist was having a hard time, I decided not to diagnose him in the novel, but if I had, I'd have probably landed on schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. What a word, huh? I wonder if you might consider trying something for me. Say the word schizophrenia out loud a few times. Not beneath your breath. Really say it. Say it loud enough that you feel self-conscious, that you worry someone will hear. Say it loud enough that someone might hear. Feel the shape of it. Stay with it. Think about what that word evokes in you. What thoughts does it arrive with? What feelings? Okay, that's the interactive part of this book over with. I promise I'll just let you listen now. But please remember this as you do so. Whole lives have disappeared beneath that word. Schizophrenia is derived from the Greek schizon, to split, and phren, mind. Small wonder, then, that the perception of a divided person with two or more distinct personalities has endured so immutably in the public imagination. It's utter nonsense, though. Let's be clear about this from the start. 
Schizophrenia does not mean split personality. Neither does it mean multiple personality. But declaring what it isn't is a good deal easier than asserting what it is. There's credible and often heated debate across the fields of psychiatry, psychology, genetics, neuroscience and various mental health charities and campaign groups over everything from causes and risk factors to categorization and treatments and indeed as to whether the whole concept of the diagnosis has outlasted its usefulness, if it ever was useful, and should be rebuilt from scratch or abandoned entirely. If we tentatively take a seat in this debate, the first thing that will become clear is that there is no uncontroversial language when talking about mental illness, and that includes the phrase mental illness. On the whole, the controversy around a term tends to relate to how medical it feels. Take the collective noun for people accessing mental health services. It was during my own nurse training that the word patient fell almost entirely out of favour, and we were encouraged instead to adopt service user, to the confusion of many service users, granted. In fact, the term had been a long time coming. It was the fruit of decades of campaigning by people who had themselves been patients within the psychiatric system and who roundly rejected the medical connotations of the term, that it implies a doctor-knows-best passivity compounding feelings of disempowerment. The term service user was preferred because it defines a group by precisely that, its use of services, rather than by a sick role. So already we see the beginnings of an ideological split. If you're a user of mental health services and believe that your distressing thoughts and feelings are an illness, presumably located within your brain and essentially the same as any physical illness, then you might well prefer to think of yourself as a patient. After all, if you're the same as those patients receiving care for broken bones and pneumonia and cancer and diabetes and chest infections, then why should you be called something different? However, if you're of the view, shared by many people, including many mental health professionals, that even the most alarming of your thoughts and the most extreme changes in your moods and your most uncharacteristic behaviours are not symptomatic of illness so much as a natural response to undischarged trauma or painful life events, then to see all this wrapped up in the medical language of diagnosis that inevitably begins with you being declared a patient might feel seriously problematic. Service user was generally considered to be the more neutral term and so gained traction. But what about people like Amit? People who are detained in hospitals and medicated against their will. Does the collective noun of service user really cut it for them? Can we in all conscience say that they are using mental health services? Probably not. Today there's a growing minority of people who eschew both terms and collectively self-identify as survivors, while the Council of the Royal College of Psychiatrists recently recommitted to patient. And if all this sounds complicated and fraught with politics, it's because it absolutely is. We've barely scratched the surface. It might be tempting to roll our eyes at this point, to quote the protagonist of my novel upon hearing the term service user for the first time. They have a bunch of names for us. Service user must be the latest. I think there must be people who get paid to decide this shit. I thought about Steve. He's definitely the sort to say service user. He'd say it like he deserved a knighthood for being all sensitive and empowering. Steve, incidentally, is a mental health worker inspired by what I felt to be my own worst professional traits. 
I offer the quote because I think it's no bad thing to uphold a little cynicism. As with any impassioned debate, there are almost certainly elements of self-interest and prejudice on all sides. That said, I also believe it would be a grave mistake to dismiss any of this as unimportant. Yes, it's a dispute about language, but in the mad, mad world of mental health care, language is everything. A simple truth, which we will confront in more detail later, is that the overwhelming majority of psychiatric diagnoses aren't arrived at by looking at blood tests or brain scans or anything of the sort. Rather, it is the words people say, or do not say, as interpreted by professionals, that as much as anything else will determine a diagnosis. And the language of diagnosis, for better or worse, has the power to profoundly alter people's lives. This brings us back to the word we were speaking out loud a few moments ago. And if something as seemingly innocuous as a simple word like patient is the subject of such controversy, we can now begin to imagine the dark storms of debate swirling around the truly immense subject of schizophrenia. It is with this in mind that I want to make a commitment. From this paragraph forth, the terminology in this book will either directly reflect that used by the people I meet or whose writings I quote from, or else will strive to acknowledge that the most commonly used terms, as adopted largely from the world of medicine, represent only one way of thinking. To this end, schizophrenia will become so-called schizophrenia, and a mental illness, a so-called mental illness. Or else I will use inverted commas or some other indicator to keep us mindful that there exists alternative narratives. The novelist in me is cringing at the unwieldiness of this, while some other part of me doesn't especially enjoy being perched on this decidedly splintery fence. But I hope it will be seen for what it is. A genuine attempt to be respectful to both those who find comfort in the language of medicine and to those who have been injured by it. OK, let's try it out. The controversies surrounding so-called schizophrenia are as old as the quote-unquote illness itself. There. That wasn't so difficult. Now, as to precisely how old so-called schizophrenia is, needless to say, there's some debate. On the whole, its discovery, or invention, is credited to the German psychiatrist Emil Kraepelin, 1856-1926. He was the first physician to describe a precocious madness that he observed in psychiatric patients and incorrectly hypothesised to be an early-onset brain disease causing cognitive disintegration. He named this Dementia Precox. Then, during a lecture in Berlin on the 24th of April 1908, Kraepelin's contemporary Eugene Bleuler, 1857-1939, made the successful case for a rebrand. Schizophrenia was born. What Kraepelin and Bleuler could not have anticipated was that their mysterious new disorder, with its exotic-sounding name, would in time come to be seen as the very heartland of psychiatry, the condition that defines the discipline. This heartland is also the bloody battleground upon which the fiercest ideological disputes about madness and its meanings are fought. Believe me when I tell you that these disputes are fierce. I first read about schizophrenia being referred to as the heartland in the British Journal of Psychiatry. It's an emotive, strangely territorial description. It's not a phrase used today, 
but it remains apt to describe what is a highly emotive and proprietorial debate. I reckon it'd even be a decent title for a book on the subject if anyone were foolish enough to try and tackle it. Many of the issues we will cover in this book are also right at this moment being debated by leading mental health clinicians and academics. And if you happen to take a cursory look on social media to find these debates, you won't have to scroll for very long before you encounter what mental health today calls a bitter adversarial dynamic. Curiously, a great deal of this acrimony exists between two professional guilds that work closely alongside each other and that many people assume are one and the same thing. I'm talking here about the distinct but related disciplines of psychiatry and psychology. The lexicon of mental health care involves a lot of these psych words. It's a prefix that occurs in this book 343 times. To put that in perspective, it's 340 times more often than Ant McParlin and Declan Donnelly implored us to watch them wreck the mic psych in their 1994 debut studio album, Psych. These words will, at least at first glance, feel familiar to most readers. They've found their way into common parlance through popular culture. However, they're often misused and confused, and that's for the very good reason that they're confusing. So let's spend a moment getting to grips with a few of them. Psychology. Psychology is the broadest of all the psych words that appear in these pages. It's the scientific and social study of all aspects of our mental and behavioural lives. It's a discipline of enormous scope and diversity. If you're thinking or feeling it, psychology has a theory about it. Clinical psychology is one of many specialisms within this field and is the one most pertinent to us here. It focuses on understanding, preventing and treating mental distress and dysfunction, often framed as mental illness. Clinical psychologists must do an undergraduate degree in psychology and a further three-year postgraduate training at a doctoral level. The main method of treatment employed by psychologists is called psychotherapy, yet another psych word. Sometimes we simply call this talking therapy. There are countless iterations of talking therapies, ranging from psychoanalysis, as developed by Sigmund Freud in the late 1800s, to the currently more fashionable mindfulness-based therapies and cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT. Many of the professionals that we will hear from in this book are clinical psychologists. Psychiatry. In contrast to psychology, psychiatry is a medical profession, Psychiatrists are medical doctors who do the usual five years training at medical school before going on to specialise in mental health. They are similarly concerned with mental distress, though they often place a greater emphasis on biological causes and medical treatments. In other words, they frame mental illness, at least in part, as the consequence of chemical imbalances within the brain, which other chemicals might be used to redress. Psychiatrists unlike clinical psychologists, will therefore frequently prescribe medication, although it's important to add that many psychiatrists offer talking therapies too. In the UK, psychiatrists are also charged with making more decisions regarding the detention and enforced treatment of people under the Mental Health Act. In the NHS, as in most Western healthcare systems, it is a biomedical approach as most closely associated with psychiatry that has become the dominant paradigm for conceptualising and treating serious mental distress. This has not always been the case. 
In our long history of trying to get to grips with human madness, different ideologies have enjoyed their moment in the sun. Go back far enough and we inevitably encounter demons and spirits, which still feature in some cultures, of course. Psychiatry was officially created in 1808, when the German physician Johann Christian Reil had the neat idea of joining together the Greek terms psych, meaning soul or spirit, and so casting an index later work into its truly philosophical context, and iatory, meaning medical treatment. Even as recently as the 20th century, the newly conceived profession of psychiatry wasn't overly concerned with biological mechanisms. Or rather, after an initial and ultimately fruitless effort to find madness spelled out on the physical matter of the brain, it turned its attention instead to psychoanalysis, and for many years a person's life history and childhood were deemed to be most significant when trying to understand and treat them. It was only in the decades after the Second World War, crucially coinciding with the invention of new medications and the publication of a now legendary classification system for mental disorders, more on these things later, that modern psychiatry nailed its colours to the mast as a truly medical discipline in the sense that we understand the term today. Many people, including numerous psychiatrists, other health professionals and people who use psychiatric services, believe that this represents good progress and is a clear sign that we're heading in the right direction. Many other people, including numerous psychiatrists, other health professionals and people who use psychiatric services, are profoundly critical of this and fear we're doing more harm than good. Psychosis. Of all the psych words in this book, the one most loaded with popular misconceptions is psychosis. It's an important one for us, not least because it's generally considered to be a defining feature of so-called schizophrenia. I remember the first time that I encountered this word in a clinical setting. I was 19 years old and was beginning my career in mental health as a healthcare assistant, providing short-term cover for wards with staff shortages. Healthcare assistants are often highly skilled and well-trained members of a hospital workforce. I was not. My interview for the job, such as it was, can't have lasted more than 10 minutes and was mostly concerned with my availability. My point is that I knew nothing. I remember arriving for my first shift. It was at a psychiatric hospital on the outskirts of Bristol, in the green and leafy grounds of an old Victorian workhouse and lunatic asylum. A crackly intercom on the locked front door instructed me to head to the nursing office. I hesitated. With all the usual anxieties that come with starting any new job, there was something else in the mix. Until this point, my only real experience of so-called serious mental illness had come from the stuff I'd discovered second-hand, from books, films, TV, and the tabloid newspapers that my parents read throughout my childhood. My head was filled with preconceptions and misconceptions about mental institutions, asylums, madhouses, and the kinds of people in them. I feverishly scribbled down notes as, one by one, nurses from the previous shift came into a cluttered office to hand over relevant details about the patients that they'd been working with and what needed to be done during the rest of the day. I'd never written the word psychotic before. I wasn't even sure how to spell it. But now I was writing it over and over. I didn't know what it meant, but it came with a feeling attached. A physical feeling. A perceptible tightening in my chest. During that first shift, 
I spent most of my time sitting in a dreary smoking room, drinking tea with psychotic people and wondering what I was meant to say. I remember meeting a woman who was recovering from a first episode of what may have been bipolar disorder. She was getting better, but was terribly shaken. She took a long drag of her cigarette and told me that before she came onto the ward, she hadn't known such places really existed. Me neither, I thought. Though not an especially precise term, at its broadest and most simplistic, psychosis describes the phenomenon of a person losing contact with reality, or at any rate losing contact with what most other people perceive as reality. It's not considered to be an illness or disease in and of itself, though it can certainly be symptomatic of disease. It's a typical feature in most forms of dementia, for instance. Many of us will experience psychosis at some point in our lives. We may even actively pursue it. It's the desired effect of numerous recreational drugs. If you try LSD and it doesn't radically distort your experience of reality, then I suggest you find a new dealer. Importantly, what we call psychosis can be a response to extreme stress or trauma. As we'll revisit later, for many people, it might be best understood as a kind of psychological adaptation, a coping strategy gone awry, or a form of storytelling carried out within the mind as a response to unbearably painful life events. Whatever its cause, psychosis is commonly experienced through hallucinations and delusions. Hallucination is the medical name given to false sensory experiences, such as hearing voices or seeing things that other people can't. Delusions are usually false and bizarre beliefs that are held with conviction and are unresponsive to evidence proving them to be wrong. Amit's belief that we were contaminating the water supply to his bedroom could be described as a delusion. It might also be described as an understandable response to what was happening to him. Most people who are diagnosed as having schizophrenia experience this kind of detachment from reality. Often, though not always, this is deeply distressing and can lead to strange behaviours as the person tries to navigate and survive in their altered, hostile world. Psychosis may be a major feature of so-called schizophrenia, but it's by no means the whole picture. Other symptoms can include a disintegration in the process of thinking, disorganised speech, disorganised behaviour, flattened or incongruous emotional responses, impaired attention and significant social withdrawal. These are often subcategorised, a little confusingly, into positive and negative symptoms. In this case, positive doesn't signify a symptom being beneficial or good, but rather that it's an addition to the person's consciousness. Hallucinations and delusions are therefore positive symptoms, whereas social withdrawal, avolition, a lack of motivation to accomplish purposeful, even pleasurable tasks, and poverty of speech are negative symptoms, as they each represent something that has been lost. In a popular TED Talk, Professor Ellen Sachs, an expert in mental health who herself lives with a schizophrenia diagnosis, asserts, The schizophrenic mind is not split, but shattered. It's also a surprisingly common phenomenon. A statistic banded around for years is that worldwide it affects around one in every hundred people, though this distribution is far from even. The rates of psychotic disorders, including so-called schizophrenia, are higher in men than in women. They are also higher in younger age groups and in racial and ethnic minorities. 
and there's huge variation, not only by person, but by place. More on that later. I mentioned that not long after I'd finished my training and began working as a registered mental health nurse, I also started to try to write a novel. There's a nice Peter Cook quote that pretty much sums up my experience of this. I met a man at a party. He said, I'm writing a novel. I said, oh really? Neither am I. Yet a mere nine years after I'd first sat in front of my computer to stare hopelessly at a blank page, my novel was, by some miracle, finished and on the shelves. So yes, needless to say, I find writing a novel really, really, really difficult, and frequently responded to this by not writing it. This is a well-established technique for the first-time novelist, and one that I wholeheartedly endorse. A lot can happen in nine years. I'd left frontline nursing to work in mental health research at the University of Bristol. I'd also had a baby daughter, got married, and was wondering whether I should maybe try and write another novel one day, and if my own mental health would survive it. Then the emails arrived through the contact page of my shiny new author website. They were from people I'd never met, but who had read my fictional account of a young man with schizophrenia, and had taken the time to reach out and share their own stories. True stories sometimes because they were similar, sometimes because they were wholly different. And this conversation grew as I continued to meet more people through my work writing and speaking about mental health. Many of the stories told to me were upsetting, others hopeful. Rarely did they have the kind of neatly conceived beginning, middle and end that as a novelist I had the luxury to craft. A truth about the strange phenomenon we call mental illness is that it's messy and chaotic, It can be extremely difficult to make sense of, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. There's a fragility to the mental health of everyone. It serves us all to be part of the conversation. That's what this book is, a part of the conversation. I'd like to introduce you to some of the people that I've been fortunate enough to meet. I'm going to tell you their stories, and after each story, I'll reflect a little on what it might teach us and what questions it raises. We will consider such topics as stigma and why the current conversations around stigma could be missing the point. Diagnosis and why psychiatric diagnostics is on seriously shaky ground. The causes of mental illness and why nobody can say with absolute certainty what makes any given individual become unwell. Delusions and hallucinations and how these are part of all of our lives all of the time. And psychiatric medication including the things that patient information leaflets don't tell us. In debates categorised by increasingly polarised positions, we'll attempt the more revolutionary approach of trying to keep an open mind. In this way, I hope that we'll untangle a few of the more pernicious myths and stereotypes that the very word schizophrenia so stubbornly evokes, and also that we'll arrive at some clarity about our own mental well-being and that of others. The Mad Hatter, uh, the one from Batman, not Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, once explained that trying to understand madness with logic is not unlike searching for darkness with a torch. Putting aside that he was an evil supervillain and maybe not the best exemplar of mental health portrayals in fiction, he still had a point. The logic of scientific research, which will certainly form a part of this book, can only take us so far. 
There is another part of the thing we call mental illness that will forever exist beyond the reach of statistical analysis, probabilities and distribution curves, or the otherworldly pictures of neurochemical imaging. It is the person. It is their story. Sitting in that hospital smoke room during my first shift as a care assistant, I was too nervous to open my mouth. I had no idea what to say, which by chance meant I probably did the best thing. I listened. It's not always possible to find the right words, but we can still be a part of the conversation. We can walk with people for a bit. Sit with them. Hear them. <laughs>